Hi, I'm Jeff Ranke, Editorial Director of Manufacturing.net and Manufacturing Business Technology. Welcome to Security Breach. Typically, I begin each episode by touching on key topics or recent cybersecurity news and setting up our guest. This time, I'm simply going to throw out a couple of figures from Tenable's recent report on the ransomware ecosystem and then get out of the way so you can hear from Saddam Narang, a research engineer focused on security response at Tenable. The FBI estimates that between 2013 and 2019, ransomware groups collectively earned over $144 million. Not too bad. But that number skyrocketed in 2020, with these groups reportedly raking in $692 million collectively in that single year. And according to U.S. government data, the first half of last year saw ransomware payments reach just under $600 million in the first six months which included a record amount of $40 million paid out by an insurance company. And you can probably guess that these reported amounts are a fraction of the true total being paid to ransomware attackers and groups. I can't encourage you enough to download this white paper and like to thank Satnam Narang for joining us today. Satnam, thanks again for joining us today. A ton of great information in the Ransomware Ecosystem white paper, and we're definitely going to include a link to that in the episode description. One of the places I thought we could start is, well, I think we know why people choose the ransomware route to go. Why is this tactic growing so fast and with such great strides, maybe compared to some other tactics out there? I think it's pretty easy to get involved in the ransomware ecosystem. If you're a cyber criminal and you're looking to make the biggest bang for your buck, you know, you're not going to go and try to just infect organizations with basic malware. You're going to partner with a ransomware group and potentially earn anywhere from 70 to 90% of the ransom demands that are earned from successful ransomware attacks. So it's a pretty easy way to get involved in the cyber criminal ecosystem. And like we say in the report, ransomware has become its own ecosystem all on its own. Yeah. I thought one of the things that was great with the white paper, too, is it talked about the structure of these organizations. I think there's still a bit of a misnomer in terms of really the scope and the complexity of them. Could you walk us through a little bit of how these ransomware organizations are comprised and made up and maybe sort of how they got to be that way? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about ransomware groups themselves is that they operate just like traditional businesses. Like, you know, one of the things that we learned after the Conti ransomware group had their playbook leaked, as well as, you know, a disgruntled member of the Conti ransomware group published internal chat conversations, what we found was they have a number of individuals doing a bunch of different things. Like you have some people who are responsible for developing the ransomware, quality assurance testing. You have people who are managing the infrastructure, like you would have someone in IT managing your infrastructure. You have people who are administrators. You have individuals that are also responsible for negotiating the ransomware uh, payment with the victims. They also are responsible for you know, distributing the, the ransom demand to the affiliates. You also have like human resources as well as like a recruitment side of things too, because they want to bring people into the fray when it comes to their operations. And also some ransomware groups go out into these um, dark web forums and they're promoting themselves just like businesses do saying, you know, our ransomware has the fastest encryption speeds, or we're going to offer you 90% of the affiliate payout, which is a staggering amount of money. So yeah, they're really like businesses. So that's kind of amazing to think there's a human resources position for, for a ransomware group. I mean, do you have any experience in how this comes together? How do they approach people to sort of become part of their organization? There's got to be, I understand there might be a thrill to it, but there's also got to be sort of a, a conflict there a little bit, wouldn't you think? 
Well, I mean, there's not something like a LinkedIn for uh, ransomware or anything <laughs> like that. But I mean, if if you think about it, they they often hang out in these uh, cyber criminal forums. You know, they're posting advertisements there because that's traditionally where cyber criminals get together. We we see them primarily on forums. But you know, a, a lot of times, what we're also seeing is that some ransomware groups that have been around for years, what they'll end up doing is that when they are either you know under the law enforcement eye, they'll sort of dissolve their operations and then they'll maybe rebrand as another operation. So they've obviously had the experience to spin up a new ransomware operation or some of them, like in the case of the Conti ransomware recently, which disbanded, uh, they start taking leadership positions in other established ransomware groups and sort of help guide these new groups in a different direction. So it's really a criminal ecosystem and it's an enterprise. Man, that's, that's incredible. And you probably just gave somebody a really bad, good idea in terms of a LinkedIn for uh, for cyber criminals. But um, another one of the tactics you discuss in the paper that kind of, to be honest, scared me a lot is this whole scheme of double extortion. Could you describe what that is a little bit and talk us through it? Yeah. So uh, when we talk about double extortion, let's start by talking about one of the you know biggest parts of ransomware, which is the term ransomware comes from encrypting files on a network and holding them for ransom. That's been around for quite some time. It's not a new technique. But what really sort of set ransomware apart was the uh, development of this technique known as double extortion. And that's where a second part of the extortion tactic comes in. It was actually pioneered by a group called Maze in December of 2019. So the Maze ransomware group, what they did was instead of just encrypting the files on a company's networks, they exfiltrated the data first and then encrypted the files. And after they've exfiltrated or taken the data off the network, they're able to kind of parse through it and see what kind of valuable information is there. And then they publish little teasers on what are known as leak websites. These are websites that are only accessible on the dark web using the Tor browser, for example. And the idea here is that the threat of publishing your sensitive information from your network about customers, about employees, this puts added pressure on an organization to pay the ransom demand. You know, we've seen in the past, like uh, last year, there were some big name ransomware attacks against Colonial Pipeline and JBS, for example. Even though those uh, organizations were able to get their networks back online, the threat of those files getting leaked publicly still prompted them to actually pay the ransom demand. And I know in the case of Colonial, they were able to get some of the, the ransom demand back. The JBS, for example, paid an $11 million ransom primarily to keep that data off the dark web. Yeah, scary stuff. Another, speaking of other scary things that you mentioned in the paper, initial access brokers. These are another part of sort of this whole ransomware collective. What can you tell us about IEBs like Exotic Lily and some of the others that are out there? Who are these guys and what are what role do they play? So initial access brokers do one thing and do one thing really well, as their name implies. They get initial access into organizations and they maintain that access. So even if they've compromised an organization weeks or months ago, they're still able to establish a foothold in those organizations. And those organizations have no idea that these uh, individuals have gained access to their networks. And what they do is they basically hold on to that access and then they go and sell it to the highest bidder. Now, as part of the ransomware ecosystem, primarily you would see an affiliate going to an initial access broker and paying them a certain sum of money. And this is also dependent on the type of access 
as well as the industry in which they've gained access. So for example, a government might fetch more money than say a small business. And if the access is say control panel access to an organization versus say remote desktop protocol, the prices will differ quite significantly. And you mentioned Exotic Lily, that is an initial access broker group that partnered with the Conti ransomware group directly. Now this is not common because initial access brokers operate independently, but in this case for initial access broker like Exotic Lily, they're able to work directly with the ransomware group and earn that 70 to 90% uh, ransom payout compared to say maybe anywhere from 300 to $10,000 for providing access to an affiliate. But that comes at a cost, Jeff, because if you think about it, an initial access broker working directly with the ransomware group means that they're going to face additional scrutiny from, say, law enforcement. So that's why we don't see initial access brokers often working with ransomware groups directly. So they're kind of in the shadows. They, they get the ball rolling, so to speak, and then hand it off to some of these bigger groups. Correct. Okay. You've mentioned affiliates a couple times. Just to kind of clarify a little bit, what, what is an affiliate and what role do they play? So, I mean, when you think about affiliates, the term is should be pretty common to folks. But if you don't know, like, for example, if you watch a YouTube video and a creator says, hey, click the link in my description to purchase a certain product, they're participating in what's called an affiliate program from like a traditional legitimate business, where if you click on that link in that description and purchase a product, they'll earn a piece of that sale from the company. This company will give them a slice of that pie in a similar way. Ransomware groups have created these criminal affiliate programs where they work with affiliates who are basically responsible for doing the dirty work. They're the ones going in, getting access to organizations. And once they get access, they distribute the ransomware within the network, encrypting the network. And then they go back to the ransomware groups and the ransomware groups are the ones that sort of handle, you know, the more administrative stuff like uh, negotiating with the victims dealing with receiving the ransom demand, and then they distribute it back out to the affiliates. So in the report, we kind of describe ransomware attacks as a vehicle. In this case, the affiliates are the ones driving that vehicle. Okay. So Sadam, we've talked a lot about the bad guys here. Let's, let's talk about one of the good guys. Let's talk a little bit about your company, Tenable. What are some of the things that you're doing to help support the industrial sector in, in dealing with cybersecurity? So I'm going to be quite honest with you. I work on the research side, so I'm not like, I don't have a big product hat that I can dive into. But I, what I will say is, you know, we've definitely been involved in looking at, you know, critical infrastructure, finding bugs in uh, OT, IoT. You know, we have a dedicated set of researchers on our zero day research team who find bugs in, in products like Siemens and things like that and report them uh, through coordinated disclosure. Uh, so we do that on the research side of things, but we also have products like our VM product as well as Tenable OT. Because if you think about it, a lot of ransomware attacks in the industrial sector, they don't necessarily go specifically after OT assets. They'll start by yeah. going after IT assets. So you want to have a multi-layered approach when it comes to protecting your industrial organization. So it's not just about the OT side, but it's also about the VM or the vulnerability management side as well. No, and I'm glad you bring that up. That's such a great point because one of the things that we talk to our readers a lot about are these sort of these silos, these operational silos between the operations folks and the IT folks, and they do have to work together a little bit more. Cybersecurity is one of these things that's sort of bringing them together and hopefully they'll continue to break down some of those silos a little bit. So, Sadnam, when you look at some of these plans you had mentioned, is there some things that you typically see that are missing within industrial organizations that they're just – they need to have in place. They're just not doing a good enough job at right now. 
So I think there's a, a number of uh, pieces of guidance we provide in the ransomware ecosystem report. There's 10 specific steps. And a lot of those steps are things that we know about. And I think one of the key takeaways from this report is that we know a lot of the playbooks for ransomware groups, affiliates, and initial access brokers. We know the ways that they try to target organizations, and they're pretty common. So it's really about doing the stuff that we know we need to do. And I think one of the key things that I've tried to convey as part of this report, and you know, hopefully it gets gets through to folks, is that you know, as we prepare for natural disasters, in a similar way, ransomware is its own type of disaster. So conducting tabletop exercises, basically operating as though you've been hit by a ransomware attack, simulating a ransomware attack in your environment, and figuring out where your pain points are and addressing those accordingly. So, you know, we hear a lot about employee training too, simple things like double factor authentication or just more um, complicated passwords, if you will. Is that stuff really that effective? I mean, it, it seems like such low hanging fruit. Is that, can that really have an impact? It definitely can, because I know that in some cases, like if you're targeting, you know, remote desktop protocol, for instance, if the attackers are using brute force techniques, they're figuring out that uh, individuals are using, you know, basic passwords. So having really strong passwords in place is one layer, but that multi-factor authentication component is definitely helpful, especially if it's context aware, right? Like if you don't normally log in from, you know, a foreign country and your network or, you know, your IT administrators notice or observe some someone's trying to access your systems from some foreign country, that should create some red flags, you know, that should sort of lead to some sort of a, a you know, a, a, a block that comes up and says, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't look normal, right? This person's only coming from, you know, California or New York, for instance. So having that multi-factor authentication definitely does provide a significant amount of value, as well as kind of auditing your your permissions on a lot of accounts. Because oftentimes when employees come and go, some accounts may still live on your networks. So making sure that those accounts get removed accordingly. No, it makes a ton of sense. So Sadam, one of the questions that I always have to bring up when we talk about ransomware is, in your opinion, do you pay the ransom if you do get attacked? What's your take there? No, never. You don't want to pay the ransom because at the end of the day, you're basically emboldening the ransomware groups and the other individuals within the ransomware ecosystem to continue their attacks. And I know it's not the you know best uh, option for a lot of companies because, again, you know, in some instances, you don't want that data to get leaked onto the network or, excuse me, get leaked publicly. So we don't recommend paying the ransomware. And I think the advice of many uh, government organizations like CISA, FBI, uh, they all pretty much say the same thing. Don't pay the ransom. No, there's definitely in the majority with that approach. There are some outliers, but that's for another day, I guess. Wrapping up here a little bit, Satnam, when we look at cybersecurity in the industrial sector for over the next 12 to 18 months, what are some of the general trends that you're seeing or, or things that our readers and listeners can be aware of? You know, I think one of the things that we continue to see that's really a problem is legacy vulnerabilities. Unpatched vulnerabilities just remain in place for months to years. And, you know, in the ransomware ecosystem report, we highlight some of the key vulnerabilities being used by ransomware groups. I think looking out for those unpatched vulnerabilities and addressing them really can kind of help prevent a lot of ransomware attacks. Makes a ton of sense. Sadam, thanks again so much, first of all, for writing the paper. I enjoyed it a great deal. And like I said, we'll definitely have a link to that in the episode description. If you want to find out any more about the work that Sodom and his colleagues do at Tenable, you can go to Tenable.com. Again, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Jeff. For more information on the work that Tenable does, you can go to www.tenable.com. 
manufacturing.com. Thanks for joining us today. To catch up on past episodes, you can go to manufacturing.net, ien.com, or mbtmag.com. You can also check Security Breach out wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Amazon, and Overcast. For Satnam Narang, I'm Jeff Ranke, and this is Security Breach.